Okay, well, jump back with me, and we are in the book of Exodus, and we are marching our way, like in the way that Israel's marching through the wilderness. Uh, We're marching through the book of Exodus, really one verse at a time, seeing the, the will and word of God. And the theme that comes out is we see Israel, in their weakness of faith, they are testing God. So in many ways, that's the theme. It's a, it's a weak faith that would test and try God when He has already proven Himself so trustworthy. But when you think about trust, if you think about testing, as you think about faith, uh, this expression came to my mind that I think we've all heard this statement, trust is earned, not freely given. Trust is earned, not freely given. And that, that statement communicates something important, doesn't it? You can't or you must earn people's trust in everyday life. You can't just demand it. You can't be given a position and just assume everybody's going to trust you and fall in line. So, for example, if you might imagine a new pastor coming into a church that didn't know him beforehand, that man should not expect just everyone because of his position to respect him, believe him, submit to his leadership. Because if people don't know you, uh, they're going to be skeptical. And why are we like this? Why are we skeptical with people? Uh, Why are we not easy to trust them? I think because if you've lived a little while, you've been burned, haven't you? You trusted somebody and they fell through. They, They proved their untrustworthiness. They proved their faithlessness. They left you hanging. Uh, They didn't follow through. Uh, They left you hurting, maybe. And so we learn early on as we walk through this life that we learn early on to withhold trust, to be skeptical, until we know someone's reliable, until they're tr- we know they're trustworthy. In other, in other words, we test them. We test their faithfulness over a time, and then if they pass the test, well, then we can rely upon them. Now, we might do that with spiritual leaders. We might do that with political leaders. You might do that with a new boss a new coworker, a new date even, as you're trying to get to know somebody? Like, when are you going to trust them and really open up to them? But that is not something you should ever do with God. Do not test Him. Because despite what you may think, or even, dare I say, despite whatever you might be going through, God has never done anything to make you question His faithfulness. Uh, just even as you're a creature, as you are a creature of His creation, uh, that's enough that you should trust Him. Let alone we as the church, as His redeemed, we've been rescued by Him from our sin. We've been recipients of His steadfast love. He has done the greatest work of all, giving us His Son, right, to earn all of our trust. And yet, much like Israel, don't we? We are quick to test Him. We suspend trust, we suspend obedience, we suspend faith in Him, and that's just a part of what we see with Israel too. It's part of unbelief. That's part of our lack of faith. That's part of our weakness of faith, namely because we think we're justified in it. No, that's weak faith. There's no justification for that. It's not about a weak, unfaithful God. He is none of these things. That is, the problem is with our faith not His faithfulness. And so then understand, this is the theme this morning as we turn to Exodus 17, understand when we doubt God, when we, and in other words, we'll talk about this, when we test God, it's because our faith is weak. There's a problem with us, not with Him. 
And yet God in His compassion, the kind of God He is, He sees this weakness and He doesn't just leave us there. He comes to our aid. And so He sends in particular His Word through a mediator, through a messenger. He gives His Word to us to reassure us of His truth and who He is. And so then, like Israel, what are you going to do when His mediator gives the Word? What are you going to do? I mean, this is a picture of it right now. What are you going to do when you hear the Word of God? Well, the Word is, do not harden your heart to it. Submit to it. Open your heart. Let the Word of God do its work, and it's not going to always feel comfortable. Maybe the Lord this morning has to do some heart surgery, and there's not going to be a whole lot of anesthetic at times. But it's for our good, it's for our health, it's to strengthen our faith. As this word, this help comes to us by His chosen mediator who bears His word. So we're going to see two ways, and we're going to see that our faith is weak, uh, but two ways that a mediator, a messenger from God comes to strengthen it. And the first weakness of our faith shows that our heart is quick to wander. Prone to wander, right? Oh Lord, I feel it. Your wandering heart, though, then needs daily reminders of His presence. You need daily accountability to call you back to remember that God is with you. He is for you in Christ. And that's the the sum of it here as we look at verses 1 to 7. The weakness of our faith shows as we are just prone to wander, prone to doubt, prone to forget, prone to, to put out of our minds the many faithful good things God has done. And so then we think, we assume when a new bad thing happens, oh, he's abandoned us, right? Where is he? Where is he in our time of need? And that's what we find with Israel, the people of God here, as we turn to Exodus 17. That is, despite all the good that we have seen that God's been doing for them, all the miracles that have unfolded for them, of course, there was the plagues, the darkened sky, the hail, the blood as He was judging Egypt, the the Red Sea's parting, the destruction of the Egyptian armies. That was just to get Israel out of Egypt, and then God's done the great work of raining food from heaven, right? And yet, despite all of these good things, they are throwing it out the window, they can't see it, and they are calling God to the carpet, they're calling God in question. But what it has exposed so far, because this is not the first time, see, their faith is being tested by God. He's trying to expose in their hearts how badly they need Him. And they failed the test a few times so far. That is, the issue is not their new circumstance. The issue is their doubting, weak, wayward heart. The, the problem is in their heart. It's a trust issue. And the next test reveals that once again, and in many ways, this is not a new test. Uh, This is a very similar problem to the one we encountered at the end of chapter 15. They're without water. Well, they're there again as we come to chapter 17. Let's look at it. Chapter 17, verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord. Note that. The Lord's the one commanding and leading them step by step, stage by stage along the way out of Egypt to Mount Sinai. And at this point, they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So this is something of a retest. They failed the faith exam before. They complained against God and grumbled against Him. When they didn't have water earlier at the end of chapter 15, well, they're going through it again to see if they can really learn. 
But before we, in our self-righteousness, go, yeah, those bumbling Israelites, right? Uh, this is a real test, though. You know, this is not merely a warning. There's a real problem here. They don't have water. And there's two million plus of them. They're in the desert. And then they have a whole lot of animals. So, like, water is a necessity, at least for physical life. So, before we get too high on our own horse, I mean, when there's a real, actual problem, a necessity-type problem, what does your heart do then when you encounter this problem? Whatever it is. Where does your heart turn? Do you turn in dependence on God, or do we turn toward angry complaining? Well, I can tell you the responses I got from our previous sermons on complaining and questioning, you all are a lot like me, prone to complain and grumble. See, the problem is with Israel, they didn't turn to God in their need, they turned on Him. And they've ratcheted it up as now they're attacking His messenger. Look at verse 2. Therefore, the people, the key word here, quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Now, stop there. Right away, it notes that the people are quarreling with Moses. This is, they're making war against him. This is not a polite request. Oh, Moses, would you mind giving me a drink of water before bed? This isn't this kind of thing. This is, give me a drink or else. They're ready to make war with Moses over their thirst. They're ready to pick a fight. So we've seen them already in the text. They were grumbling or complaining. Now it's being ratcheted up in intensity. Now they're declaring war on him. They're they're ready to take vengeance. They've been wronged, and we're going to take it out on you, Moses. But like before, as they are complaining to Moses, Moses exposes for them Hey, guys, hold on a second. This isn't really about me and you. This is about you and God, right? Look at the rest of verse 2. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel contend with me? And then he rephrases it. Why do you test the Lord? In reality, guys, your war is against God, not me. And very much the way he had pointed out in chapter 16, verse 8, Remember, they were grumbling against Moses, and then what did Moses tell them? He said, in this whole thing, you're not grumbling against me. Your grumbling is not against us, but against Yahweh. It's against the Lord. Except now, in this case, chapter 17, it's worse. You're not just grumbling. You're testing God. You're contending with God. You're declaring war on God. Now, what does it mean to put God to the test? It means to, in this case, you're making God the accused in a trial. You're putting God on trial. C.S. Lewis puts it. You're putting God in the dock. You're making Him the convicted one, or at least the one that is accused of the crime, and you're going to judge Him. That's what's happening when you test God. God, I don't deserve this. I have perfect judgment on this. I know what is wise. You're in the wrong. Defend yourself. Now, what was at the heart of this test? What... uh, what were they calling into question? What, what could they no longer believe about God? Well, it gets summed up in verse 7, so the end of this section, where it's a summary of all that's kind of gone on, and 
this incident is going to be remembered through the life of Israel. And, and so much so by the way it gets a name at the end. So Moses, verse 7, it says, He called the name of that place Massah and Meribah, which in the Hebrew, respectively, talk about testing and quarreling. It notes, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord. So you guys, you need to remember that place that we came from because it showed how quick you are to test and complain and to quarrel against God. Why? Because you need to know what your heart's like that you have a wandering heart. But then notice at the end, well, what is the thing they were testing God about in the end of verse 7? What was that question that they, they no longer could believe? Is the Lord among us or not? God, are you with us? Do you even really dwell with us? Because we can't believe that any longer. Again, it doesn't make sense to me how you can say you're with me, you love me, you're for me, and then let this happen in my life. We cannot reconcile in our finite minds, let alone these minds that are tainted spiritually. I can't make sense how you can be good, like you say, and then let this evil difficulty challenge come into my life. And so we're saying, we're going to test you. I'm going to prove you're wrong, God. And what does that look like? We demand him take it out of our life. If you're good like you say, you can get rid of this then. Or we just condemn him, we judge him, and we say, you can't be good. You can't be good and let me have this kind of job or lose that job. You can't be good and let me have this kind of marriage. You can't be good and let me fail this exam and not get into this school or lose something or someone I love. Or You just can't be good and let that difficulty come into my life. Well, if you can resonate with any of that, understand that's the heart of unbelief. That's a wayward heart. That if we're not careful, that's the kind of heart that can easily become not even merely a hardening heart, but a hardened one. Now, for many of us here, I think we have the sense, the spiritual sense to not like blurt that out loud to say, oh God, you've done me wrong. And yet, that's the practical thing we're doing when we are getting angry at our circumstances. See, for Israel, God had led them to this precise location on purpose, a dry place with no water, to see, will you trust me or not? It's going to expose their heart. Look again at verse 1 of chapter 17. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages. But where did they go? Why did they go where they went? According to the commandment of the Lord. And by His command, they camped at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. So they're grumbling against Moses, but Moses didn't choose this path. He had no control over it. He was merely following the pillar of the cloud right over to Rephidim. Once again, God was testing them. He led them there, there's no water, and in response, the people are livid because they don't trust Him. Now, we don't follow a pillar of cloud of fire, and yet our God is the same sovereign God. That means He's in total control of your life, all the details. 
your paths are ordered by this God. And so that means, though, when things aren't going well, and you might respond like many of us, you get angry, you get desperate, you get upset. Maybe you feel really stressed, and so you're short with others in your family. You burst out in anger. Or I was this past week in Southern California, and though it was modest for Southern California, there's a lot of traffic in Southern California. How do you respond in traffic when you're late? You know, it's like that person who's just gradually getting more and more agitated. I mean, it's interesting. Road rage is like a thing, right? And the traffic builds up, and you're getting later and later, and so you're getting angrier, and you're getting upset. And and then you have to ask, well, who are you getting upset at? Yourself for not leaving earlier? These other, other drivers who are gawking at the accident and rubbernecking all the way, creating this whole backup? Well, get this. Whoever you think you're angry at, it all gets sent all the way up heaven's flagpole right at God's feet. You're getting angry at Him. And in this case, Israel's gotten so angry that they think Moses is even out to get them, and so they're going to go get Moses first and kill him. So even after Moses, looking back to 17, he gives them this warning, hey guys, you're quarreling, you're testing God, not me. They're like, we don't care, Moses, we're going to kill you because you're trying to kill us. Such that by verse 4, Moses, we read it here, he fears for his life. So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are ready to stone me. So Israel's just been overcome by their lusts. Their physical needs have just overcome them. It's overcome their brains. And so then their faith is flying away and they are being taken, taken captive really by spiritual amnesia, forgetting all the good that God has done for them. We rehearsed it earlier. And then if you could put yourselves, and we can say this maybe in some kind of sanctified way, but if you were God putting God's shoes on, if you were God and you were dealing with this kind of people, what would you do next? So you've saved them repeatedly, though they've cried out to you with complaining. Even as they complained, you've met their need miraculously, sensationally, over and over again, and yet they still complain, ready to kill Moses, grumbling against you. What would you do? If you kept doing so much good for someone and they just still won't trust you, would you yet be ready to give up and move on? Well, not Yahweh, not our God. His grace is too great. Praise Him. His patience is too long-suffering. And so God literally steps in to meet their need, to satisfy their thirsts. And he's going to do it, though, in a special and in a very certain way. It's very intentional what he does here. Because he's going to accomplish two things. He wants to accomplish two things. One, he wants to show Israel that only God can provide for them. That only God can deliver them. He's going to do it in a way that nobody else can save them. But second, he's going to show them, and I want to do it through Moses. I want to provide through a mediator my chosen one, my messenger for you, Moses. See this play out in verses 5 and 6. 
So picking it up, the Lord instructs Moses in verse 5, And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. So notice those three things. First, Moses is told to pass on before the people. He needs to get out in front of everyone. Everybody needs to see Moses. This is intentional by God. And second, Moses, you need to take some elders with you. These guys are going to serve as the witnesses. They need to see what I'm going to do through you for the people. And third, Moses needs to take God's staff with him in his hand. This is the sign of God's authority on Moses. Okay, check, check, check. Now what? You need to go. What's he supposed to go and do? Look at verse 6. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock, God says, at Oreb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So not only was Moses going to have the staff of God in hand, but God was actually going to be there on the rock itself in some way. Such that when Moses strikes the rock, Lord, the Lord just causes water miraculously fly out of this rock, enough water to supply two million plus people and all of their animals with water. What does this tell you? God is with you. That's what it tells you. Because there's no other way you're getting water from a rock in a desert unless God intervenes. You know, you know the expression, you can't get blood from a turnip? Well, try getting water out of a rock. Squeeze a rock in a desert, no water's coming out. This is a miracle worked by God. God is there. And yet, it's interesting, he does it by or as using Moses as an instrument, as integral to this whole process. Think about the previous chapter. They needed food. How did God get them food? He just, in the expression, rained bread from heaven. They woke up in the morning and there was bread on the ground. Moses really had nothing to do with that. Well, God says, no, I'm centering your, you could say even salvation. You're centering your rescue, my provision through this mediator. He's preparing them to, to receive Moses as the mediator of God who's going to give God's word. They need to learn to trust him. They need to see that Moses has an essential role for what God is doing with his people. God supplied the water, but he did so by way of Moses. Of course, Moses could never do anything like this apart from God, but God also chose to do it only through Moses. Why? What are they supposed to come up with? What are they supposed to see? They're supposed to see this. If I stick with Moses, if I stick with our mediator, I'm sticking with God. And that's the help the mediator's giving. It's this reassurance and reminder that they can stick with God if they stick with the one who's giving them God's word. And we need these kind of reassurances. We need these reminders because our heart is so quick, so prone to wander off track, isn't it? That's why, as we put it, you need daily reminders of God's presence to be, keep drawing us back, to keep tethering us to Christ. And to show you this, I want to take a New Testament application of our text. So turn with me to the book of Hebrews. That's in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, and I want to look at the third chapter, Hebrews chapter 3. 
For the author of Hebrews, he's going to lean on Psalm 95, which Psalm 95 has in mind our text from Exodus 17. So we're getting kind of multiple layers of Scripture quoting and applying Scripture here. But we can't look at this whole marvelous chapter, but let me just set the stage for the moment. The way Hebrews chapter 3 starts, it starts with this comparison or contrast between Moses and Jesus. See, Moses was the servant and minister of the Old Covenant, it's called in Hebrews 3. And the way it's set up in Hebrews 3, Moses was great. He was an excellent servant of the Old Covenant. So you should listen to Moses and what he told you in the law. But Jesus is better. And the point is, if you listen to Moses under the Old Covenant, all the more you need to listen to Jesus as he gives you his word under the New. And yet, even though we have Jesus as the one, the, as it says in verse 6, He is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are His house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence or boasting and hope, we got to hold fast. And then, and then the hard part is, because we're a lot like Israel, though, and we're, we tend to wander off. We tend to harden our heart. We will wander off if we do not be urged intently to listen to His Word. It will actually end up just like them. That's the connection as we turn to verse 7. So here it is. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7 begins like this. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and then he's about to quote from Psalm 95, today, if you hear His voice, so here's the Word of God coming today, when that happens, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of the testing in the wilderness. And those words rebellion and testing are the very words that we're dealing with from Exodus 17. This is the incident they have in mind when they tested God and they complained or quarreled with Him. And so what's the lesson we get from Exodus 17 and Psalm 95 and Hebrews 3? It's when God's Word comes... Don't delay to listen to it. Don't wait to obey it. Don't harden your heart to the Word. Be believing, not unbelieving. And so much so, that's not only true for our own heart, but that's even the call, because we know the tendency of all of our hearts. This is the call that we must engage with with all of our brothers and sisters in the church. Look at verse 12 of Hebrews 3. Take care, brothers. So this is a call to the church to... Care for one another. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Brothers, watch out. Don't let your brothers and sisters drift away from Jesus. And what does that look like? Not receiving His Word. Verse 13, what's the, what's the solution to this? To not drifting, to not be unbelieving, to not harden your heart? Verse 13, but exhort one another every day as long as it's called today. So how often do you exhort then? Every day. What about tomorrow? Well, eventually tomorrow becomes today. And so what do you do then? You exhort one another. You encourage one another. You call one another back to Christ. Why? That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We know our hearts. We know how deceiving and powerful the the lies of Satan and sin can be. And so we're reminding one another daily, don't believe it. Jesus is better. Jesus will lead us right. But notice in verse 13, it says, exhort one another every day as long as it's called, and the ESV nicely puts it in here, quotes, today. 
Why? Because it has in mind verse 7, where we began from Psalm 95. Today, if you hear His voice, if you hear God's Word, don't harden your hearts. Don't close your heart to the Word of Christ. It's dangerous to do that for you and for your brothers and sisters. And it's so dangerous, it cannot wait for tomorrow. Don't sit in your sin another moment, another day. Why? Because by tomorrow, it might be too late. And I don't just mean because, well, we might die tomorrow. We don't know when our end is, though that's very true. That's incentive to repent. But here's the real problem, and this is the, the diagnosis or, or what the look looks like of a, a hardened heart. We assume that we'll want to repent tomorrow when in the process we're actually hardening our heart against God. See, each day, every moment, you hear the Word and you're being convicted, you're being confronted, you know you need to change, but then you put it off. That is one little step of your heart getting harder, resisting the Word of God. Just a little bit more, just a little bit more. And before you know it, your, heart, your heart's rock hard. It's like hardening concrete, right? When it starts, I mean, that stuff is just soup. It's malleable, loose, liquidy. And for quite a while, if you're ever trying to get the quick-drying stuff and you want it to dry quickly so you can build the rest of your deck... Like, will this stuff ever dry? Or it's like a, a kid walking and seeing a, a, a newly put out sidewalk, or, or the kid sees them putting out the sidewalk. And if you're a devious kid like me, you're thinking, oh, when those guys leave, I'll come back and put my handprint on it. Yeah. Except the problem is you come back the next day because you didn't do it that day, it's too late. It's as hard as rock. Well, that's what our heart does when we don't respond to His Word. Sin does that. Indulgence does that. It's the deceitfulness of sin to tell you, oh, it can wait for tomorrow. God will forgive you anyway. It can wait for tomorrow. And what you're doing in silencing God's word from your heart, walling off his conviction, you're just making it a little bit harder until before you know it, it's immovable. You no longer want to change. And you start thinking things like, oh, if only I had changed yesterday. Well, let me say to you encouragement too. Maybe you think that's you. I didn't change yesterday. And maybe it's too late. Well, if you can hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Right now, repent. He'll have you. Oh, he will have you. He will strengthen you by his spirit. Don't harden your heart, brothers. Why should we wait? And not just for us, but encourage your erring brother today. Don't wait for him for tomorrow either. We all need that kind of daily reminder, the spiritual wake-up call to remember. And that's a big incentive why we wouldn't harden our heart, because we know He's faithful. Even when it hurts in the moment, we know He's faithful, we know He's good. That's what the gospel tells us. And that's why it's so important. I mean, that's why in verse 12, it's, it's so given towards, in verse 13, brothers and exhort one another. This is why the gathering of the church is so important, to be a wake-up call to the truth. This is why communion, the Lord's table, remembering the gospel together regularly is so vital to our faith because we can't forget all the good He's done and He will do. This is why regular fellowship is essential to our faith. 
This is why we must daily remember the gospel, never forgetting what first we deserve from God. And then to hear, like we did last week from Ephesians 2, that despite of all that we deserve, but God. But God, being rich in mercy through our mediator, but God, what he has done through Christ. We can't forget that. If we have that in mind, whenever we hear his word, even as it convicts and it's challenging, we know it's for our good. So we can't forget, we must always remember. So that means you've got to be in regular fellowship. But even for your own soul, I just want to remind you of a practical tool. I might call it a bit hokey, and I don't mean that in the positive Virginia Tech way. I mean it in the way that sounds maybe trite, but honestly, it's a help, it's a help to my own heart. And it's just this. I know some of you do this, and it's encouraged me in the past. When someone asks you that question, how you doing? You know, in like a typical greeting, and instead of saying something like, good, fine, doing well, how about you? Uh, to help my heart sometimes, I'll say this, how are you doing? And then I'll respond, better than I deserve. I've even had people try to argue with me at the cash register about that. Checking out, like to get a, you know, a meal somewhere, and then they're like, oh, how you doing today? Better than I deserve. And I've had them go, no, 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 you, you seem like a good guy. What? Or they start getting scared, what did you do, Right? <laughs> Well, ma'am, if you knew, if you knew me like God does, if you knew what I deserve for all the wrongs I've done against him, and that he loved me anyway, and gave his son on the cross for me, that he's forgiven me, you, I can say that no matter what is going on in my life, I'm doing far better than I deserve. But it's only because of the cross. That's the truth our wandering hearts have to be bound to. However we want to get at that, remind one another. Back to Exodus 17. Our hearts are weak in, our faith is weak, not only that we wander, but they also get weary. And so your weary heart needs daily reassurances of God's power, and that's going to come by the mediator who's going to give you the Word of God. So we look now at verses 18 to 16. And actually, as we turn to verse 8, things kind of take a shift. It seems like a rather abrupt change. But really, it's just another test for Israel. But this one's a new challenge. This isn't a retest. It's not one they really had to encounter. And it's that there's going to be nations. There's going to be war. They're going to attack them. And they are not going to play fair either. Look at verse 8. When Amalek excuse me, then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Now the Amalekites, these are distant cousins to the Israelites, now separated by, you know, several hundred years. But Amalek was originally Esau's grandson, which that makes Jacob the patriarch, Amalek's, oh man, great uncle, if I said that right. And then after that, Amalek went off and became a clan and tribe all his own. And though Amalek and the Amalekites, they didn't dwell in the promised land, they dwelt nearby. And so this seems to be, for the Amalekites, a, a work of preservation. It's a preemptive strike against the Israelites before they become too strong of neighbors. But we know from Deuteronomy, as the Amalekites come to make war, they don't fight fair. 
And we do not know that merely from verse 8, but we know from it from the retelling of it in Deuteronomy chapter 25. So here's Deuteronomy 25, verses 17 and 18. You can just listen. It says, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary, and cut off your tail, those of you who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. So you can understand. I mean, we got two million people marching out of Egypt, going to Mount Sinai, and eventually going to the Promised Land, okay? And then it's a caravan of some two million people. And you can surmise the, the weakest among them are the ones that are farthest behind. That would be who? Well, the older, the sick, and the weak. They are the ones who would be the tail, so to speak. They are the most vulnerable. They're the most defenseless. They're at the very end of the pack. And it seems like the Amalekites targeted those most defenseless. They targeted those who were no threat to them and picked them off and killed them. And for such a cowardly and ruthless move, the Lord condemns the Amalekites and commits to make war with them until they're eradicated. We can skip and see that as we look at verse 14. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And that'll be finalized later on under King Saul, but the war starts now. And so we look at verse 9. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I, Moses says, I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Moses' battle strategy is twofold. First, very practically, he chooses Joshua, who's going to get some men. They're going to go on the ground. They're going to go fight. You know, swords in hand. But second, Moses goes up at the hill with the staff of God in his hand. And so it's as if, and it is, that Israel's war is actually on two fronts. There's a very physical war going on, very real, very much real blood and so forth. But there's a spiritual battle taking place too. Such that as Joshua's on the ground leading the charge against the Amalekites, Moses sits on the hill, staff raised up, fighting the fight of intercession, fighting the fight of faith for the people of God. And interestingly, note this, the spiritual battle actually determines the outcome of the physical one. Look at verse 11. Whenever Moses held up his hand... And note, it's his singular hand, probably has the staff in it. Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. So the higher he holds up the staff, making the intercession, the better Israel fights. And you just need to know, as we start here, that we too are at war. Very much engaged in a spiritual battle. So that means, first and foremost, our war is not against pornography. Our war is not against the internet, or abortion clinics, or secular education, or dirty politicians, or bad friends for our kids. Paul, rather, tells us in Ephesians, our war isn't against flesh and blood. No, our battlefield is the heart, and our opponents are the flesh and the devil. And that means, too, our weapons are spiritual weapons empowered by the gospel of Christ. 
We know this from Ephesians 6. Paul commands us, take up the whole armor of God. And then he, he looks at the Roman soldier and he associates them, the different armament with the different pieces we've been armed with in the gospel. That is, taking our stand, we're armed with the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and the boots of gospel peace and the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the very Word of God in hand, holding it up, right? Now, but it's about a spiritual battle. We're, we're dealing in metaphors. What does it mean to fight the spiritual battle? Well, from that passage in Ephesians 6, I think the very next thing Paul says is most instructive. After listing all of that spiritual armament, here's the next thing Paul writes. He says this. This is Ephesians 6, verse 18. We must be then praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication, that is intercession, for all the saints, and then Paul adds, even for me. So brothers and sisters, very much, what does it look like to engage in spiritual war? How do we fight this battle? How can we tap into the strength of God but by prayer? Really a posture of saying, Lord, I can't do it. I need you to do it, so I'm going to stop doing and start asking. And we know this as we're engaged in ministry. I mean, we're preaching the word. We're sharing the gospel. We're discipling our kids. But I guarantee you, it will do nothing if God does not work in the heart. So we got to pray. We have to pray and call upon our God to give us the power to fight, to resist, to preach, and to serve. But we can do nothing without God. And may we not show that by a lack of prayer. We are in a war. Back to Moses and that picture of him holding up the staff. As you know, you can only hold your hand up in the air so long. Soon your arm tires, it lowers. And when that happens with Moses, Israel starts to lose, verse 12. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side, so his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. Now, there's two things you need to see here. First, Moses' hands get tired. They start drooping. And once they do, Israel starts losing. And so Moses, though he's the mediator, though he's the chosen intercessor on behalf of the people for God, he needs helpers. So he gets these guys to hold up his arms. And again, we've talked about this, but there's so many pictures here, right, of the Christian life. Chief among them, you don't go it alone in the Christian life, and you shouldn't. Why? In part, because what we've shared is that we are weak, and we easily tire, and we're weary. We saw it in Hebrews 3. We need the support of one another. We need the encouragement of one another to warn us, to, to warn us of evil, hold us accountable, to do the right thing. We need the physical support of one another for visits and help on projects, even getting jobs or getting out meals, whatever. We need each other. The Christian life is not designed to go it alone. You've been saved into a body of people, not as individuals, called to bear one another's burdens. So that's one thing. We, we need somebody to come hold our arms up that we can be faithful. 
But this example with Moses teaches us more than that. Because note this. Aaron and her, they can hold up Moses' arms, but evidently, they're not permitted to hold the staff for him. Isn't that interesting? I mean, if it was me and you're there with Moses and you see the thing dropping, you're like, oh, Moses, take a break, take five, go get a Snickers, I'll hold that up for a while for you. But Moses had to hold the staff. He was the chosen mediator. He was the one who had the special role. He was the chosen go-between between Israel and God. He was the connection point. And God had determined to use him, and nobody could replace him for that. It's interesting, though, because as God had chosen Moses for this, remember how Moses started with the whole thing? He's like, God, I don't want to go. I don't want to do this. Pick somebody else. You made a bad choice. I think you're thinking of the wrong Moses. And Moses only acquiesces once he's able to bring Aaron along with him. But now, things change. God is, by having Moses be the one to strike the rock and provide the water, by having Moses be the one to hold up the staff, God's setting Moses apart in the eyes of the Israelites so they can be ready to see what's going to happen next, which is what? God's going to give his word through Moses. And they need to understand that it's not Moses' word, but it's God's word because he's the connection to God. Such that here, as Israel battles, right, they could look up on the hill and they could see Moses still holding up the staff of God and they know, okay, we're still connected to God. God's fighting for us. And once it's all over, that's the implication of what Moses says. Look at verses 15 and 16. So Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, First of all, what's the banner? The banner on the battlefield will bet you'd raise up and so everybody could see it and run to this rallying point. And what it's saying is the Lord is our banner. He's the one that draws us together to fight for us. And that's what he's saying as he goes on in verse 16. A hand upon the throne of the Lord. I think Moses' hand raised up such that then what do they know? The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. The Lord is the rallying point of the battlefield. He's the one that fights for them, and they connect to him through Moses. So they know as they look up to the hill and see Moses holding up the staff, they know God is fighting for them. But Moses gets weary, doesn't he? And I'm sure the soldiers on the battlefield were getting weary. And if you have walked in the Christian life, if you've labored in prayer, if you've labored in sharing the gospel, you've labored in discipling your kids, if you've labored hard for the sake of the work of the gospel, you know how wearying it can be, how hard it can be to keep going. And that's why our weary hearts, we need one another. But in the end, what do we need most of all? I think we know the answer by now. We need help of a mediator. We need that reassurance that He can give us the strength we need so we can keep fighting the fight of faith. And so while on the battlefield, Israel could look up on the hill and they could see Moses standing up at the hand of the Lord giving them strength, we looked up to a different hill, don't we? A hill called Calvary. Or better yet, we look up to heaven 
to the very throne room of the Father. Because at the Father's right hand, what do we see or who do we see there? Well, Paul gives us a glimpse of it, a view of our mediator in Romans 8 where he writes, If God is for us, in the context, if we could apply it to here to Exodus, if God is with us and He's fighting for us, then Paul asks, who can be against us? For He did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. How will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? That is, what, what greater good could He give us than give us His Son to rescue us? Is God not for us? Look up that hill and you'll see He's for you in Christ. Because what do you see on that hill? Paul goes on, who is to condemn us? What do we see? We see that Christ Jesus is the one who died, but more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and what is he doing? Interceding for us. Praying for you, brothers and sisters, right now. To intercede, to strengthen you, to uphold you, to defend you. To keep you in him till the race is over. So, brothers and sisters, look to heaven, look to the gospel, see and remember, he is still for you. Because when we look to heaven, we know this that whatever difficulties await us in this life, none of them, none of them can change the way God sees you in Christ, and none of them can separate you from the love of God. Let's praise Him for this. Let's pray.